This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon. My name is Brian Topher, Principal Architect of Topher Architecture, and you are listening to New Books Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network dedicated to architecture and its publications. If you have any suggestions on authors who you'd love to hear me speak with next, feel free to send me an email at btopher at topherarchitecture.com. Today's guest is Ginger Nolan to talk about her book, Savage Mind to Savage Machine, Racial Science and 20th Century Design. Ginger Nolan is Assistant Professor of Architectural History and Theory at the University of Southern California School of Architecture. Ginger, thank you very much for being here with me today and welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Of course. Now, before we begin, can you tell the audience a little bit more about yourself? Um, yeah, so I'm an architectural historian, um, and I work also not just on architecture, but on uh, aesthetic media in, and infrastructures um, and technologies. Uh, and I think, like like many people who, I think, come from an architectural background, a background in design, who move into architectural history, um, I work a lot on late 20th century histories, but I also have a, um, some projects that look at um, late 18th, but mostly 19th century histories as well. So I know it's a vague question to sometimes start with, I, whenever, I, but I want to ask about kind of a brief overview or synopsis of the book, particularly because often when someone reads the title of a book, they can probably think they know what's going on. And I have to admit, I thought that, and I was completely wrong on quite a few counts for the book. So, Yeah, and titles are also not only the work of the author, but of the publisher. <laughs> so sometimes they can be a little misleading based on what um, publishers think will market well. So I think I think racial science is a little bit misleading and that that is um, a, a theme to some extent, but it's not, um, I, I wouldn't have necessarily had that in my, as an actual title, but, um, but yeah, so Savage Mind to Savage Machine um, it is basically looking at the relationship um, from the late 19th century through the 20th century um, between modernist design, but specifically the applied arts like industrial design, architecture, Media, media design, including computation, um, the relationship between these and uh, a discourse of modernist primitivism. Um, so, you know, there's 
an awful lot of scholarship out there in our history that looks at the connection between the fine arts and sort of practices of collecting and exhibiting um, world architectures through the lens of modernist primitivism, but there's very little um, scholarship that really thinks about primitivism in relationship to the applied arts. So that's basically what it's about. Um, I'd also just add very quickly that um, because of that different emphasis, I think there's a different kind of primitivism in, that, than from what one finds in, in the fine arts and that it's much more focused on the psychological and the semiotic um, in that designers in the applied arts were really interested in uh, the unconscious mechanisms of creativity and of cultural formation and of aesthetic communication. Um, so I look at those, those things as well. Interesting. And you bring up primitivism and hopefully I said that right. I, I want to come back to that, of course. And so uh, thank you for that explanation. And so, you know, again, kind of breaking the mold more than once with this, I, I often don't like to kind of quiz authors on very unique terms or concepts. However, there's quite a few in here that jump out. And the one I would love to ask about is the idea of spiritual ergonomics. You know, two terms that I think anyone in architecture school is very familiar with, but I, I personally, and I think many have not heard spiritual ergonomics before. Yeah. So um, I guess I'll break it down by saying first by spiritual, I'm thinking more uh, in the sense of cognition. So maybe more like kind of German Geist in which it's the spirit, but it's also the, the mind, the brain. Um, so, you know, if you think about t like industrial tailorism, right, which we think about sort of the, the training and disciplining of the body, um, spiritual er ergonomics, I'm thinking of as a set, set of dispositifs, really, things that are kind of disposing um, people and their brains um, in relation to technologies. Um, so not necessarily to encourage um greater productivity, although that's one thing I look at in the late 19th and early 20th century, like, for example, at the Bauhaus, um, we see spiritual ergonomics um, as a way of encouraging sort of greater creative production, um, and often in relation to new technologies of reproduction. But I also look at it um, sort of more from the angle of um, sort of technological use and perception, right? So like looking at computation, um, and how brains are being configured in relationship to new new technological interfaces. Does that does that make sense? I cannot. It it does. Okay. Well, you've read the book, so you probably yes. <laughs> yeah. I also have an unfair advantage <laughs> more, here. More length, but yeah. <laughs> and so it, that brings a good point, though. And so, of course, I am an architect. I teach architecture, and so that when I when I grabbed the book, that is kind of where I was. However, you, you do talk about architecture. You do talk about quite a bit of other fields as well, even in the responses you've been giving. And so, initially, when you when I when I saw when I was going through it, and you bring up the Bauhaus and modernism, which of course are very important in the book, you know, I am familiar with those from an architectural standpoint. However, and again, I, I'm going to pretend like I didn't read it. You, you you talk about those in a light that as it, those of us in the architecture field have not kind of been, become familiar with, if that question makes sense. Yeah, well, no, because I'm not talking, I'm talking about people who are not architects at the Bauhaus, you mean, for example, yeah. So, um, so you know, people who architects might be familiar with, like Johannes Itten, because he taught this, um, you know, sort of famous preliminary course, the four course um, at the Bauhaus. But um and Gertrude Grunau, who's, who's less known, is becoming a little better known. Um, 
But um, but it, yeah, I'm interested sort of in design. I mean, design at that time period, I think starting in the late 19th century, but you certainly see this more strongly at the Bauhaus, like design is being conceptualized as a discipline as a, uh, that enfolds many forms of creative production um, um, at this time period. So that's design more than architecture per se is is my topic of interest although certainly you know architects um play significant roles in different chapters like Jonah Friedman um and um the Smithsons to some extent um but but even sometimes those architects like Jonah Friedman as you know having read the book right I'm looking a lot at his propaganda work for UNESCO so it's not always work that is so directly architectural although I look at that too Mm -hmm. And so you had now, of course, we'll bring it back to something we talk, you talked about earlier. You've been mentioned primitivism. I'm not sure why that, that, that gets me so much. And so, you know, right in the title of the book, the idea that you have savage mind. And so throughout the book, you bring up the idea of savage thought, not just kind of what I think a lot of us are thinking of, but there's quite a bit more you elaborate on there. And so the question I have is, you know, this idea of savage thought and primitivism, can you walk us through a little bit, you know, kind of why that's central to the book's theme? Yeah. Um, so, and it's, you know, actually you, you're raising a, an interesting question too, which for me was like in writing this, it's something that scholars who write on similar topics face, right? Is like, to what extent do you like constantly use scare quotes when you use these terms and how do you choose these, these terms? Um, and I, I chose the term savage in many cases and, and for the title, I mean, partly because I'm riffing on um, Claude Levi-Strauss, um, uh, Pensée Sauvage or, you know, Savage Thought, the, the book, um, one of the books he's famous for. Um, but, and I'll talk a little bit about why, but, um, but I prefer the term savage because I, I think it's kind of a hyperbole, right? Whereas the primitive, you know, until not fairly recently, right, was a kind of acceptable term in like our field and not in other fields perhaps, but, um, but in the field of architecture, like, um, and I think, even primitive hut sometimes isn't really used and put in scare quotes until fairly recently. But, um, but I think when people hear the term savage, it's, I think has a much sort of kind of stronger connotation of, of violence and the violence that the term does. Um, but primitivism, I mean, it's not a term that I'm coining. It's, it's used quite a bit by art historians who look at, um, you know, the way modernist artists were um, producing a discourse and aesthetics of the so-called primitive. Um, and so it's that discourse that I'm that I'm interested in and the aesthetics. Um, you know, as for as for the term savage, I mean, I mean, Levi Strauss was an important um, figure. I mean, not, I don't focus on his work very much, but it's because you know Levi Strauss, you know, this anthropologist who's writing primarily in the 1950s and 60s. Um, and into the 70s, um, most of his major works. But he, um, you know, he had, like many people at the time, right, he had a a cybernetic understanding of the human brain as functioning according to a binary system of, like, on or off electrical impulses. And so this really informed his understanding of culture. And so he really kind of clarifies that relationship that I'm interested in between uh, technology uh, and the human brain and the so-called primitive. Um, and of course, he doesn't use the term primitive himself or he uses it in scare quotes if he uses it. Um, but 
but he is nonetheless, I think, looking, you know, he does make distinctions, right, between the so-called bricoleur and the engineer that kind of roughly map onto, um, I think, related ideas of the, the so-called primitive and the, you know, the so-called modern. Um, so that's why I, I'm using the term savage. Uh, thank you very much. That clears a lot. And so you had meant, and so of course you kind of talked about, you didn't use the word politics, but you did talk about when writing about something like that. And so in a few spots throughout the book, you do talk about, how do I word this? That's sounding too vague. The idea of politics versus the, and if I'm, tell me if I'm misunderstanding anything, but the ability of design to kind of depoliticize certain items. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so, you know, when I, when I mentioned earlier that um, designers were very interested in these unconscious mechanisms of thought, of, you know, aesthetic communication, of, you know, culture, um, they, you know, that, that, that interest has a kind of depoliticizing implication, right? So, so arche- not just architects, many designers were interested in aesthetics um, aesthetic modes of communication that circumvented language. And that's a key trope in the book, the circumvention of language as a kind of conscious mode of analysis and discourse and the search for, you know, less conscious modes of communication. So um, like, I mean, one of the sort of prime examples of like Marshall McLuhan, who talks about, um, and he's, he's drawing from like, um, people working like in the British colonial film unit, for example, who are um, interested in how radio and film are really um, forms of governmentality that don't work through conscious propaganda, political propaganda, but that kind of weave people um, unconsciously into sort of rubrics of governmentality. Um, so that's, so, as, so the depoliticization, right, is in this constant assumption, right, of people who can be deprived of political agency um, through forms of architecture and other aesthetic media that are kind of organizing them or disposing them um, in ways that they don't fully grasp. Right. And so, and thank you again. And so everything you just discussed, you brought up technology a few times. And so of course the, I guess I know there's not a specific time frame, but there, in my opinion, there does seem to be a bit of a focus on a specific time frame in the book. Would you agree that post-war kind of modernism would be the time you focus on yeah, the book? Yeah, because it's only the first two chapters, really, that are, bef- and then the other six chapters are, yeah, all post-war up into the late 20th century. And so, and so the question I had is, you know, we're talking about technology. And so that's an interesting time period because, at, of course, technology is always present. But in that time period, a lot of designers, again, with my own bias, architecture in particular, technology started to become a little more prevalent or at least exposed. And so the, the, what's interesting is, would you think, would you say that in the present day, of course, this book isn't focused on that, but would you say that things are kind of similar to what you talk about in the book or? Well, I think, I mean, I think the book and my own thoughts like are, are speaking to a lot of contemporary phenomena that are not necessarily architectural, at least not depending, I mean, depending on how broadly or narrowly you define architecture. But um, I think so much of it is really speaking to, um, you know, phenomena related to like social media 
um, and the, the depoliticizing effects of, or at least, you know, I mean, I was, maybe I'll give it one example to flesh it out better. Like, you know, I, I talk a little bit about um, Nicholas Negroponte, the architect who um, was one of the, the co-founders of the MIT Architecture Machine Group um, in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, and, you know, in the around 1980, right, he's talking, and he's not the only one talking about this, like lots, all these people are talking about things like this, but he's talking already about news feeds, right, that are tailored to your, um, how, how you know, technologies can learn from your preferences and feed you the news that you want as opposed to the news that you don't want to read, that you're less interested in. Um, and so I think, you know, the political effects of like thinking about technologies that so directly into our impulses that um, then kind of filter out, you know, what's not sort of, that doesn't, whatever it does not appear as sort of intrinsically um, appealing, right, to one's drives, right? This is um, something that we're, I think we're so familiar with today with all the debates around Facebook and, and Twitter, et cetera. Yes, that answers my question. And, and then some, it actually brings up quite a few other things to talk about. And so, again, as an architect, I keep focusing on design as, you know, the literal drawing of something and then building it at some point. And, you know, we've talked about artists, but there's something else that you're talking about social media brings up and that you talk about kind of towards the end of the book, you know, the fact that design is not just this physical thing. And I know a lot of us make that. There is UX designers and kind of computer engineering, et cetera, that probably have more impact on our lives than physical design. Yeah, and, and I'm not also the first person to make this claim. Like, you know, there are people like John Harwood um, who, you know, talk about sort of the architecture of the interface. And it's, um, so, you know, it's it's not just a coincidence that architects have been involved. Um, or you can think of Molly Steenson uh, Wright's book, right, on architecture and, and computer design, um, right, that architects have been des- uh, involved in the design of computer interfaces. Uh, and there are these, Overlap. So I think, you know, figures like Yona Friedman are so interesting because of the ways that their architectures relate to the ways they're, you know, these mega structures that Yona Friedman proposed into which people could kind of plug their own auto-constructed houses. Um, the way these relate to them, the way they're, he's thinking about um, the design of computer programs, hardware and software, actually, that could allow people to kind of plug their preferences into um a computer program that would then sort of arrange different auto-constructed units or at least units that people sort of had some some kind of determination over the layout. Um, it would sort of plug these into a, a megastructure. Um, so there are these very direct connections between uh, computer interface design and architectural design in the, in the 1970s. Uh, yes, of course. And so Again, I, I, I've been saying this a lot lately. There's there's so much more we could talk about in the book. And so I will encourage everyone who's listening to read because I we can't sit here for the next few hours talking about it all. But one thing uh, I think our viewers would love to hear about is, you know, I you told me this before we started recording that the book took a long time. But, you know, since the book kind of wrapped up and has been published, you know, what have you then moved on to? What projects are taking up your time now? Yeah, well, I mean, it's also not like the book wrapped up at one point because it was wrapped up at various points and then you return to it. So I've been very intermittently working on a project, um, a large project, but that, you know, I've been stalled on as far as the archival research because of the pandemic and my own like 
um, you know, intercontinental <laughs> relocations. But um, but uh, it's it's a project that looks at it's it's also a kind of long history, but a little bit more historical in, in certain ways. In that it um, it looks at architectures and infrastructures of risk management in settler colonial context in North America. So it's sort of seeing how the home, how domesticity, how agriculture uh, were being organized through different infrastructures. So even, you know, things like, I mean, financial infrastructures like bank mortgages and home insurance and farm insurance and things like that, um, as well as um, mediatic infrastructures like farmer's almanacs. Um, but and, and then how homes themselves, right, were being um, conceived as part of a, a project of, um, of settling uh, colonial territories and westward expansion. Um, so that's that project is also, I mean, it's it looks it focuses largely on Euro-American strategies of colonial settlement, but it also looks at sort of some groups who are excluded from these infrastructures of risk management and how the kind of alternative forms of risk management that they promote. So um, like African-American owned and African-American sort of directed forms of credit for home loans, home improvements, as well as for home insurance. Um, And I also look at um, how indigenous groups, when, when they're, forcibly resettled, like in Oklahoma, the kinds of architectures and infrastructures of um, risk management that they develop. Interesting. Perhaps we'll talk again in the future about that. (laughs) Yeah, probably in the distant future, but yes. (laughs) Well, I want to thank you again for taking the time to talk with me today. Yeah, no, thank you so much for interviewing me. I really appreciate it. Oh, anytime. And for everyone listening, the book is Savage Mind to Savage Machine, Racial Science and 20th Century Design. I want to thank everyone for listening and have a great day.